Um, hey, so most of you were on time today. I was going to open, so next week, we're setting our clocks back, right? I was going to open with a joke about the end of daylight savings, but most of us were on time, but I'm going to just say it anyway. Just set your clocks back about 45 minutes. And then you all will be here for the first song. You'll be in your seats on time. Yeah, right. That's funny. I know. Okay. Good. Um, so welcome to week five of our Love One Another series. So if you haven't been with us for the first four weeks of this series, um, you've missed out. We've had some awesome talks. Um, you know, John and Josh and Debbie have just been bringing us through just sort of this winding journey of, you know, what does it look like to do relationships in the kingdom, to relate well to one another, to relate the way that Jesus related to people, and, you know, to do that in a way that really puts the gospel on display through our lives. And this week, I'm really excited to talk about peacemaking. Peacemaking is something that has become very important to me um, in the past few years. It's something that the Lord has sort of begun to, to mark my life with in subtle ways, you know, and I'll, I'll tell a few stories uh, today in this talk. But, you know, I just feel like God's doing something in me and hopefully in our community with respect to this idea of peacemaking. And I wasn't going to open with this story, but I think I, I, think I am going to open with this story. Uh, when the Holy Spirit really, like, grabbed my attention um, with respect to just peace and making peace and being people of peace in our communities was back in, like, 2014 or 2015, I had just become a Christian. I had just become a follower of Jesus, and I was at the movies, and I we were watching uh, the movie Captain Phillips. Have you guys seen the movie Captain Phillips about the, the ship captain? He's out and the ship gets raided by pirates. And it's really a compelling story and it's, it's like fascinating. It's a fascinating movie to watch. But something like just sort of got stirred up in my soul when I watched that movie. Um, you know, I'm going to spoil the whole thing. So if you're getting ready to watch, you know, duck out or whatever. But uh, at the end of the movie, so the ship gets raided by pirates, and you know the, the, these people come to save the, the ship and its captain from the pirates who have taken the ship, the ship captive. And long story short, they, they shoot the pirates. They kill the pirates. And there's this like long moment of suspense at the end of the movie where you know the sniper has the pirate in his sights, and and he has you know, his, his long rifle, you know, he's got this guy scoped in and, and he's going to take him out. And he does. He shoots this man in the head and kills him. And the whole theater at that moment just erupted in, in cheers and applause because the pirates were the villains of the film. I mean, they were, they were taking these people captive against their will and they were trying to steal this ship and its cargo and make money off of it. But when this man in this movie was killed and the whole theater cheered and, and just rose to their feet, something just deep inside of me was like, 
this is not how it was meant to be. This is not what we were made for. This is not how we respond to the truth that human beings were created in the image of God. And I was just like profoundly moved by, by what I now know was the Holy Spirit speaking to me about making peace in our lives. And, and that's a dramatic and extreme example. But it set me on this course of thinking about what does it mean to be people of peace? And what does it mean if Jesus really is the Prince of Peace? Because he says he is. What does it mean to follow the Prince of Peace into a world of conflict? And that's what I want us to think about today. So last week, John gave an excellent talk about uh, conflict and actually embracing conflict as an opportunity for intimacy and growth in our relationships. And that is absolutely dead on accurate. That is 100% the mission of Jesus. And we see throughout his life that Jesus was a confrontational guy. He, he, he didn't make any bones about what he came to do and what he came to say. But Jesus was a peacemaker in a really unique and, and singularly kingdom way that only Jesus could have been. And he calls us to live the same kind of life that he lived making peace. And so I just want us to think about, you know, when we look at the world around us, when we look at what's going on in our families, and the conflict in our families and the brokenness in our relationships and estrangement, and when we look at violence in our community and, and hate between one group and another group, and when we look at what's happening on the, the global level, I think there's something inside of each of us that's looking at that and saying, this isn't how it was supposed to be. This isn't, this isn't what we were made for. And what I want to propose to you today is that the Jesus way of peacemaking is the answer to that, that unrest inside of ourselves. And we try to figure that out in a lot of different ways. In our relationships, we read self-help and we, you know, talk to therapists and we, whatever. And all that is good. All that is good. And in our communities, we have, you know, active listening groups and there are people who come in to teach you know, folks in city government and, and important positions in our community, how to um, sort of keep the peace and bring people together and have conversations and all that is good. But what I want to say is that Jesus is the only answer to real and lasting peace. Jesus is the only one who can do true peacemaking. And if you read the devotional this week, you would have read about the difference between peacemaking and peacekeeping. And peacekeeping is simply this idea that if we hold the two sides apart from one another, they won't fight. They can't hurt each other. If we get in the way, right, if, if two parties are feuding, and put an obstacle between them, <clears throat> excuse me, put an obstacle between them, then, you know, this, this conflict, this violence won't occur. But peacemaking is the practice of setting things right. It's the practice of setting things right in our lives, in our families, in our communities. It's the practice of setting things right between us and God. 
And when we enter into that practice, there is an immense reward from the Lord. There's a reward of, of intimacy with God. There's a reward of understanding the heart of Jesus in a new way when we enter into doing that kind of work. And we actually do that um, at the cost of our comfort and our safety from time to time. So, what are we to make of all the Bible has to say about peace in light of the fact that we do not live in a peaceful world? It makes me feel a little bit hopeless sometimes when I lose sight of the person of Jesus and when I start to ask myself that question and I think, well, what can I do? What can this church do? What are we going to do to figure out this, this problem that we have? And, you know, we, we lack this peace. We lack peace in our own hearts, in our relationships, in our community, in the world. We need to figure out how do we reconcile that lack of peace with the fact that we claim to follow the Prince of Peace. And so, you know, I've alluded to it here, there, peacemaking exists kind of on a spectrum. And we, we make peace between ourselves and God, we make peace within ourselves, we make peace interpersonally, and then obviously on the family and the community and the global level. I'm going to address today the, the interpersonal kind of peacemaking, but those other things are just as important and they're just as relevant to the mission of Jesus. You know, a lot of times when we talk about peace, People will think, you know, peace, that's for, you know, liberals and uh, beauty queens and hippies. But the truth is, peace belongs to the people of God. Peace is the mission of the people of God. And it was, it's actually something that we would do well to reclaim for ourselves. Because it's work that was assigned to us by the Father. And then we kind of just ask somebody else to do our homework. See, the culture that we live in, the culture that we're steeped in, disciples us in conflict. You recognize this. The cable news, the 24-hour cable news cycle disciples us in content. The social media algorithm disciples us in, in, in this conflict mindset where we, we look at people, and John called this out last week, we look at people and we hate people for their ideologies. We hate people for their ideas. We hate people because of the things that they do and say. That Jesus is inviting us to a radical posture of peacemaking with folks who think differently from us. So before I go any further, I want to recommend a book to everybody. This book is called Peace Catalysts. And it's by a guy who uh, was in the Vineyard Movement for a long time. He passed away a few years ago. His name is Dr. Rick Love, appropriately. And um, it is one of the best things that I have ever read on peacemaking and making peace and just this concept of, you know, what does it mean for us interpersonally? What does it mean for us as a church to, to be peacemakers in the world? Um, so check out Dr. Love's work. It's spectacular. Peacemaking is not for the weak-willed or the faint of heart because it requires that we change the way that we interact with our instinctual fight-or-flight instincts in relationships. I think John and Josh and maybe even Debbie, all three of them have talked about that idea in this series. That when we're faced with an uncomfortable conversation or we're faced with conflict 
in our lives, we sort of have a reaction toward one or, or the other, uh, fight or flight. So we dig our heels in, we feel the need to justify ourselves and prove ourselves, and so we engage in that conflict. Or we get out of dodge, right? I'm more the get out of dodge type. So my tendencies when there's a hard conversation, when there's conflict is, how can I get out of this room? Uh, what's the fastest way for me to get out of this room? Where's the closest door? And how can I not have to confront this issue or this person like ever again? Okay, but peacemaking requires that we stay engaged. So my fellow, uh, my fellow, you know, conflict-averse people in the room, I'm talking to you. When the conversation gets hard and you want to escape and you want to leave, peacemaking demands that we stay at the table. Right? Peacemaking demands that we stay at the table. And for those of you who your tendency is to fight, you want to dig your heels in and you want to yell and you want to prove yourself and justify yourself. Peacemaking demands that you engage for the purpose of understanding. You engage for the purpose of understanding, not to win the argument, not to win the day. You engage for the purpose of understanding. So if you read the devotional this week, you're going to be familiar with the key text for today, because we really, we worked it over pretty good throughout the week, but there are some more things that we have to say about this. And if you're thinking, I've heard enough of Romans 12, 18, um, one of the things that I've started to realize about the Bible over the last few years is it's just so rich and so deep, like every word of it is so rich and so deep. And, you know, we could meditate on this passage for the rest of the year and still learn new things about it every day. So, Romans 12 has actually started to become one of my favorite portions of all of Scripture. Paul, here, he, he opens the chapter. He's talking um, a living sacrifice and offering your life as worship to God. He's talking about serving the body. And, and then he gets into this section that this passage comes from about practically loving others. Practically loving others. Putting love into action. And so we're going to read this this whole section, and then we're going to focus in on, on this one key verse. So the Apostle Paul writes, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, and bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. What a fantastic little passage. I mean, we could pause on like every three or four words of that and do an entire series on it, right? So this is so jam-packed with spiritual wisdom for, for living right before God and living right before others. What I want to do is just take this last sentence and focus in on it. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, Live at peace with everyone. This is our roadmap 
for interpersonal peacemaking. In this one little passage is everything that we need for living at peace with the people around us if we will hear what the Apostle Paul is saying. So Paul starts out by acknowledging that peace will not always be possible. Right? He says, if it is possible. So right out of the gates, Paul is acknowledging peace will not always be achieved. Dr. Dr. Rick Lovewey says, peacemakers are not peace achievers. They're peacemakers. They're people with a radical commitment to making peace. And being a peacemaker is not conditional on peace actually being made. It's about your posture. I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Um, but biblical peacemaking is not a sentimental way of thinking about peace. It doesn't oversimplify peace and say, hey, why don't we all just get along? Why don't, why don't we just, you know, just get over it, just ex- accept this, concede to that, whatever. Just get along. Why can't we all just be friends? That's not biblical peacemaking. That's oversimplified peacemaking that actually lacks power to transform anything. It does, because usually the people who are saying those kinds of things are sort of like sequestered into their own little groups, and they're pointing fingers, and they're looking at people, and they're saying, well, why can't you just get along? And why can't you just get along? And why can't... Peacemaking gets involved. Um, This weekend, Bree and I were in Cuyahoga Valley National Park. It's a beautiful park. I love being up there. And we went for a long hike on Friday. And it made me think about something that I've heard said about the kingdom of God that I really like. And I can't remember exactly who said this, so I don't know who to attribute it to, but um, it was a, a teacher in my life. And they said, the kingdom of God is like water over a rock. And that's a really interesting thought. And so we, we sat there in the park, and I'm looking at these waterfalls, and I'm looking at the, the grooves you know, that this waterfall has carved in these like rock formations over thousands and thousands of years. The erosion of this rock, and you can see where the water has been flowing, and it's really interesting because that's going to happen like no matter what you do. It's coming. <laughs> you could build a dam upstream, but eventually it'll break and the water will keep running and it'll run over that rock and it'll, it'll make that groove. And the more I thought about that, the more I thought about how the kingdom of God is like water over a rock, it made me think about this idea of peacemaking. We've been at this for 2,000 years. Christians have been at this for 2,000 years. And sometimes we can think, have we really made much progress? Like, is the world a lot more peaceful than it was 2,000 years ago? Maybe from some perspectives, but we have to realize that we're in it for the long game, that the kingdom of God is like water over a rock. And no matter what you do, the kingdom of God is going to have its way with the world. And when we're peacemakers, we're participating in the flow of that. We're getting involved in the fact that the kingdom of God is like water over a rock. It's going to flow, it's going to erode a groove in the way of this world. As, as hard and resistant as the world might be, way of the Prince of Peace. Eventually, the kingdom of God will have its way. And so when we decide to participate in peace, 
And when we think about this idea, if it is possible, we remember that there is going to be resistance to peace along the way. There will be people and situations and institutions that resist making peace. But we're in it for the long game, right? We read the end of the book. We know what happens. The kingdom of God will have its way in this world no matter what we do. And so I I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about how peacemakers are not always peace achievers. And, And that links right in with the next thing that the Apostle Paul says. He says, as far as it depends on you, peacemaking is a choice. And since peacemaking involves two parties, reconciliation isn't necessarily always possible. That's where peacemaking and reconciliation are a little bit different. Because when two parties are reconciled to one another, that means that you know, the conflict has completely been resolved and, and their relationship is repaired. But peacemaking is a different thing because you can have an individual, unilateral commitment to making peace, regardless of what the people around you are doing. And it's really easy in that kind of a situation to just throw your hands up and say, whatever, I'm just going to embrace this conflict. I'm just going to stop talking to them. I'm just not going to text them back. I'm just, I'm just not going to give them a call. I'm just going to quit knocking on that door. But peacemaking is an individual decision to continue to bark up that tree, so to speak. And so when the Apostle Paul says, as far as it depends on you, what he's saying is we can't ignore it and we can't wait for the other party to come to us. And so as I'm saying this right now, there might be relationships coming in your mind where you've been waiting for the other person to make the first move. Because that was so painful. What they said was so painful. What they did... You know, that just was like totally inexcusable. I'm going to wait for God to change their heart. They have to come to me. And the Apostle Paul says, as far as it depends on you. He doesn't say, if it is possible, as far as it depends on the other people in your life. If it is possible, as far as it depends on the people who hurt you. If it is possible, as far as it depends on the Democrats. If it is possible, as far as it depends on the LGBTQ community. If it is possible, as far as it depends on the abortionists. No, as far as it depends on you. And so interpersonal peacemaking is a personal decision. So we're commanded repeatedly in the Gospels to take the initiative ourselves to make peace. We'll look at a few examples. Matthew 5, 23 and 24, really well-known one. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and and there, remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your gift. What a radical perspective. And did you note it? There's something interesting in there. It says, if you remember that your brother and sister, brother or sister has something against you, if you remember they have something against you, not if you have something against them. I think that's an interesting little thing that people don't talk about often. If you know 
that somebody has a problem with you, leave your gift at the altar and go make peace with them. That's hard, right? Because that requires us to be aware of the fact that, oh man, like there's something I did or something I said or something about my personality or whatever, you know, that has set somebody off, that has, you know, somebody, somebody has something against me. And there's an invitation to go make it right. If a brother or sister sins, go and point out the fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Matthew 18, 15. This is a call to face-to-face peacemaking. Face-to-face peacemaking. This is hard because we live in an age of text and email and, you know, do people still poke each other on Facebook? Or is that over? I don't know. You could poke somebody, I guess, if you need to make peace with it. Whatever. No, the truth is, just between the two of you, you go to them and have a face-to-face conversation. I mean, these are really simple things, but sometimes they're things that we kind of take for granted when we think about this. Because it's like, oh, I have a problem with so-and-so, or they might have a problem with me. I'll send them a text and say, hey, sorry, bro. You know, let's hang out next week or whatever. But the truth is that real communication happens face-to-face. Real communication and relationships happens face-to-face. And this is hard to do. Have you ever experienced this where you, you make up your mind that you're going to try to make peace with somebody, that you're going to own a mistake that you made or that you are going to, you know, whatever, and you get to that moment when you're with them and they're sitting right there and you're having a conversation and you just like can't get the words out or you just make small talk and you just move on. And it's like, oh, I really let that opportunity slip, right? It's hard. And you know why it's hard? It's not just hard because it's hard for us psychologically or it's hard for us, you know, because it's hard because it's actually spiritual warfare. It's hard because it's spiritual warfare. When you like repent to a brother or sister face to face, you know, there's a reason that Satan is referred to as the accuser of the brethren. So when you can sit with someone face-to-face and own a mistake that you made, or say, hey, you know, you did this, and I'm, like, really struggling with it. That's, you're doing spiritual warfare. See, a lot of times, uh, spiritual movements, like the vineyard, you know, we love the stuff that the Holy Spirit does. We love praying for healing, and we love prophecy, and we love all that. But we discount relationships, we discount interpersonal relationships because they don't strike us as particularly spiritual. We think, you know, the spiritual stuff, that's happening during ministry time. That's happening, you know, when I feel the heat and the tingle in my fingers, or that's happening when I'm on the floor or whatever. But the spiritual stuff is happening like throughout the week when we're doing this, when we're doing this kind of work. That's spiritual warfare. Luke 17.3, so watch yourselves. If a brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them, and if they repent, forgive them. <laughs> that's hard, yeah? I mean, rebuke, eh, that's, I don't, you know, that's, that's kind of weird Bible language, you know? Maybe you don't say that, but like, the idea is there, right? Come to them and say, hey, you did this, and it, it hurt me. Like, it was really painful. And, you know, Let's talk about it. And then it says, if they repent, forgive them. Some of the hardest words to say 
Bree and I have had a lot of conversations about this. Some of the hardest words to say are, I forgive you. Because we usually default to something more like, it's okay. It's no big deal. No, it's cool. Don't worry about it. But, but to look at someone and say, John, I forgive you. You know what that does? That actually acknowledges that something bad happened between you. That, that, that actually has the opportunity to heal when you say something like, I forgive you. But when you just look at people and you say, it's okay, it's no big deal, that's fine. Really what you've done is you've brushed off their apology. You've taken their apology and the, the spiritual impact that it might have had on your relationship, you've, you've sort of dismissed it because you didn't then impart forgiveness to them, which is also spiritual warfare. It's a profoundly spiritual thing to do. Hebrews 12, 14. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. You know, again, it's, this, it's restating this idea. Make peace with everyone. All people. If you go to the Greek, do you know what everyone means in the Greek? Everyone. Yeah, there isn't like a clever, cool, you know, workaround there where it's like, oh, it means, you know, all the, the brothers or, you know, all, all believers or all the people I like or no. It just means everyone. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone. That's hard. That's really hard. So that's the next thing that, that Paul says. If you can flip back to that first verse. Live at peace with everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. The Bible teaches peacemaking without borders. Period. Point blank. Now don't hear what I'm not saying. The Bible doesn't say you know, accept and embrace and practice every ideology. Or, you know, just let, let everything in to your life with no limits and no guardrails whatsoever. But it does teach to live at peace with everyone. Family. Family who have wronged us. Family who are ideologically very different from us family who we feel like have walked away from the faith, friends, atheists, Muslims, undocumented immigrants, the LGBTQ community, Republicans, Democrats, live at peace with everyone, right? These are groups that we put labels on, and then like John said, we we make a wholesale judgment on the character of all people that we determine to be part of those groups. When the truth is, this work of peacemaking is extremely difficult because it requires that we see beyond the labels that we work of making peace with them. Peacemaking pushes us beyond our comfort zone and outside the walls of our churches. I am so encouraged by the number of my friends who are vineyard pastors who have dozens and dozens of relationships with non-Christians. It's encouraging to me. It's exciting to me because that's what we see Jesus doing, is actually doing the hard work of engaging with people beyond the walls of our churches, 
beyond the comfortable limits of the kinds of people that we like to associate with. And being willing to engage and create friendships, actual friendships with people that allow the gospel to advance in the world. So peacemaking challenges us to live peaceably the way of Jesus with our neighbors, with no excuses, and with no exceptions. Um, I want to give, to finish, I want to give two metaphors for peace because I think they're really helpful. And one of them might be a little bit of a, of a paradigm shift for you. The first one is cultivating So peace is like a garden. And the second one is waging peace because peace is also like a battle. As counterintuitive as that might sound. The word peacemaking in the Greek, like when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, it actually has a, a connotation to it that is a little bit like gardening. It kind of means to cultivate peace, like people who cultivate peace. Now let's think just for a moment about what it is like to plant plants and harvest their fruit or their vegetables. Um, you have the ground, and if you're starting from scratch, you know, it might not even be useful. It might be covered in leaf litter or grass or, you know, whatever. And so you have to do something with this ground to plant your plants. And so you, you work the ground and you till it and you cultivate it. And then you have ground that's suitable for planting. And so then, you know, if you're planting from seeds, you begin to plant these seeds. And realistically, some of your seeds probably get eaten by animals. And some of your seeds die in the ground. But some of the seeds sprout. And then these plants start to grow. But you have to protect the plants. Because in a lot of situations, if you just leave them to grow, you know, the deer will eat them or the rabbits will eat them or whatever. And you, you won't, they won't be fruitful because they, they get eaten up. And so you cultivate these plants and you protect them and eventually they grow and they mature and you harvest fruit from them. And peacemaking is much the same kind of thing. Peacemaking is a long and intentional and arduous work that is laced with failures and some successes. But it's a commitment to a long-term cultivation of a way of being. It's not like buying food from a grocery store. So we cultivate peace. We cultivate peace in our lives. We cultivate peace in our relationships. What does that mean? How do I cultivate peace? Well, you're in there. There are relationships that are broken. There are people that we hate. There are situations that we think are hopeless and helpless. There are people groups that we hate, that we've made judgments of. And so peacemaking, like a garden, like cultivation, is that slow, lifelong work of coming to realize, who have I formed judgments against? Who have I written off as, you know, God can't speak to them. They've walked away. They're gone. They're too far off. I've done too much in this relationship to screw it up. It's the slow work of identifying those things, engaging with them, and, and cultivating them 
It's not one conversation. It's not coming to a person and saying, hey, I'm sorry, you know, will you forgive me for what you did? And then boom, everything's restored. It's taking the time to care for that relationship and protect it like you would care for and protect plants in a garden until eventually it bears fruit. Some plants take a really long time to bear fruit. Plant a fruit tree, it takes several years to get fruit from that fruit tree. Some things it's like 90 days or 30 days. So there are varieties of cultivating peacemaking. And the second, the second metaphor, the second thing that I said was that peacemaking is like a battle. And so we actually wage peace. I think this is a super interesting idea. It's something that Rick Love talks about where he says, uh, I'm seeking to wage peace because peacemaking is a battle. Overcoming evil with good or seeking to end a conflict nonviolently demands strength and fortitude. To do so, we must choose to wage peace with wisdom, to do so in love, and to be willing to move beyond security. That's, that's a tall task, right? Doing so can help change the angry, polarizing climate by becoming a powerful force for peace. What does it look like for you to wage peace in your life? What does it look like for you to be aggressively committed to making peace in your relationships. I like the way that Josh talked about being an assertive communicator a number of weeks ago. When we're assertive communicators and those moments come where I have the opportunity to ask for forgiveness or to give forgiveness, when I identify a broken relationship in my life, if we're waging peace in our lives, those moments don't pass. Those moments of opportunity don't pass from us. We, we take them when we see them. We make the intentional decision to wage peace. You know, there's a situation in, in our lives right now, and I'm trying to figure out what it looks like to wage peace. There are two people who are really close to us, and they're totally at odds. And it just gives me that sick feeling like this isn't how it was meant to be. And there are other relationships caught in the crossfire, and it's just bad. It's just messy. And so I'm asking the Lord, what, what, do you, what does it look like for me to wage peace right now in this situation? To reach out to these people, to engage with them in some way, to have, I don't know what it is, but Lord, I want to wage peace. So I have a story about each of these, and then we'll close. Cultivating peace has been an interesting journey for me in one of the most important relationships in my life. One of my closest friends, um, who's actually married to one of Bree's closest childhood friends. Um, we, we became Christians around the same time. We spent a lot of time together in high school. We were very close. You know, we, we studied the Bible together. We worshiped together. We prayed for people on the streets of Lima together. We did house church together. We were, I mean, we were super close. We were like brothers. And then this, this time in our lives comes around where we'd been friends for four or five years, and Bree and I were getting ready to get married. And this guy and his now wife came to us and they just said, we, we just don't think you should get married. Like totally out of the blue, like really weird, didn't really give any reasons, and then kind of just like cut off relationship with us. And it was like super painful because this was one of the most important relationships in my life. I mean, we were, we were so close. And so we had to make a decision. Are we going to lean out of this relationship 
Or are we going to trust that it's important and, and that the Lord gave us these friendships and these people for a reason? And are we going to cultivate peace? And I can honestly say that the last five or six years since that happened have been a journey of cultivating peace in this relationship with this other couple. And it's been extremely fruitful and rewarding. Like extremely fruitful and rewarding. But in the beginning, it was really hard because we were the ones that had to kind of make the decision like, we're going to lean into this and figure out, you know, what happened here. And like, how can we, how can we go forward? And how can our families remain, you know, engaged with one another? And man, it's been awesome. It's been an awesome, fruitful friendship. And, and it's like, I wouldn't trade it. I wouldn't trade it for anything. And, and then waging peace. Waging peace is different. I don't have a lot of waging peace stories because I'm just learning about this and how to do it. But I want to share one with you uh, about one of my spiritual heroes, St. Francis of Assisi. So some of you may have heard this story before, but St. Francis of Assisi had a radical commitment to peace in his time. And it was radical because St. Francis lived during the Crusades. So it was, it was an extremely violent period of history, and, and he was kind of living on the side of the aggressor. He, he lived in Italy, and um, St. Francis, there, there's a lot of folklore and stories around his life, and some of them may or may not be true, but this is one that is definitely verifiable um, in the history books. So the Crusades are going on. The Holy, Ro the, the Holy Roman Empire had instigated this series of conflicts against Muslims in the Middle East in the Holy Lands over the course of hundreds of years that we now know as the Crusades. And St. Francis was one of very few people to ever openly object to the church's official position on the Crusades. Their official position was, you know, we must take the Holy Lands by any means necessary. We will wage war against the Muslims. We will kill as many of them as we need to, to, to take this land, because it's important that we are in possession of it. And Francis looked at that and just said, you know, that, I, I don't think that's the way of Jesus. I just don't think that that's what we ought to be doing. And so St. Francis made a decision to, to wage peace. He resisted the status quo. He opposed the violence and bloodshed of the Crusades. And what he did was instead of fighting, he took another monk with him. This monk's name was uh, Illuminado. What a cool name. And they took off for Egypt from Italy. So they decided, we're, we're going to walk to Egypt. And we are going to confront the Sultan of Egypt, Sultan Al-Kamil, Malik Al-Kamil was his name. And we're, we're just, the two of us, we're going to go with the purpose of peacemaking and evangelistic contact with this Sultan, and we'll probably be martyred, but whatever happens is, is what's going to happen. We're going to go. And so they went, and they're walking, and on their way to visit the Sultan, um, they saw two sheep. And Francis was reminded of, you know, when Jesus said, I'm sending you out like sheep to the slaughter. He turned to Illuminato and he said, you know, I, I feel like I hear the Spirit saying, the Lord is sending us out like sheep to the slaughter. And moments later, the Sultan's army closed in on them and they were captured and they were badly beaten and they were taken back to Egypt. So when they were taken back to Egypt, um, they were brought before the Sultan. And... You know, the sultan's army, they said, well, you're going to have to answer to, you know, the guy that you came to see. And so they came before him and he said, 
what, why are you guys here? What are you doing? You know, are you, are you Christians who have come to become Muslims? Or, um, you know, why, why are you here? And they said to his face, they said, Muslims we will never be, but we have come to save your soul. And the sultan was kind of taken aback, and he was like, wow, you know, that's pretty forward. And as the story goes, um, they're documented as being winsome, is what it says about Francis and Illuminato. They were winsome. So they didn't say it in a confrontational way that they really put him off and just made him go, well, you know, I'm sick of these guys. Get him out of my sight. It says they were winsome. And so he said, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to turn you over to my clerks, and we're going to have a trial. They're going to hear your case, and they're going to decide you know, what we should do about you. And so they said, okay, you know, so they throw him in prison and they plead their case before the sultan's clerks. And the clerks, you know, these are experts in, in the Quran. They're experts in Muslim law. And so they hear uh, Francis and Illuminato, they hear their case and they come back to the sultan and they say, well, you know, the law, according to the law, according to the law of God, um, we, we need to behead them. They, they should be put to death for what they've done coming here and saying what they said to you and just who they are as people, it's, we, we need to put them to death. And so the sultan, you know, heard his clerks out and he sent them away and he brought Francis and Illuminato back and he said, well, guys, um, the clerks said that we need to have you beheaded. We're, we, sh- we should kill you. According to the law, according to God, you know, that's, that's what we need to do. But I feel like that would be pretty poor compensation for your coming here to save my soul. And so what the sultan did was he had Francis and Illuminato treated as honored guests for the rest of their stay in Egypt. They stayed a few weeks. They had a series of meetings with the sultan where they talked to the sultan about the gospel and they talked to them about you know, the, the real Jesus, not the Jesus that the sultan had been presented with by the crusaders. And the sultan said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send you back to Rome. Because I think when I send you back to Rome, you'll plead the case of peace before your people. And not only that, but I'm going to give the Franciscan order freedom of movement in all Muslim lands to preach the gospel. And um, the Franciscans, you're welcome here anytime you like. And then that sultan, Sultan Al-Kamil, he was the one who negotiated peace with the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II to prevent the next crusade. So not only did Francis and Illuminato's radical commitment to waging peace in their world result in their lives being spared and the freedom of the movement of the gospel in Muslim lands for a few hundred years, but it also put off another violent conflict that would have cost thousands, probably tens of thousands of lives. And the reason that I tell you that story is not because it's a story about war. It's not because it's a story about, you know, violent conflict or kings or emperors. I'm telling you that story because Francis was just a guy. And he had such a radical commitment to waging peace in his life that he said, I know that there's another person on the end of this who's just a guy. And I'm going to go talk to him and see if we can make peace. And the, the impact of that was incredible. And so I think for us, in an age where 
You know, we're, we're being discipled in conflict everywhere we look. The media that we take in, the news that we listen to, even the conversations that we have. You know, we're, we're not intentionally discipled in our culture in the way of peace. But the way of Jesus is the way of peace. And so I'm going to invite the worship team back up. And I just want to pray for us. Because I think, you know, if we as Oxford Vineyard become a community that's marked by waging and cultivating peace in our personal lives, we will stand out in the city of Oxford. Do you know how rare it is that people have direct face-to-face conversations one to another when there's a problem? Instead of talking about each other behind each other's backs or tweeting about each other or whatever. It's rare. It's extremely rare. And it will set us apart. And they will know that we are Jesus followers because of our love for one another. That'll be the result. So will you stand with me? I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to worship. And and we'll have a few things here for, for ministry time.